Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick, and thanks for being here tonight. An organization that stirred up a lot of interest was started by the wife of the late Steve Jobs, Lorene Powell Jobs. It's called the Emerson Collective, and tonight you'll hear from their Managing Director of Social Innovation and Impact, Anne-Marie Burgoyne. She'll tell us about who inspired the organization's name. Ralph Waldo Emerson had a very deep belief in self-reliance, the belief that if individuals had an understanding of what was possible for them, if they had knowledge of what their choices were, and then if they had the options to go toward the choices that were interesting and important to them, that they could lead lives of great purpose and great community and great kindness. And then we're going to discuss adoption with Rita Sorenen, the CEO of the Dave Thomas Adoption Foundation, an organization that has been the voice of foster care adoption for years. Today, the most recent numbers are there are 125,000, more than 125,000 children in foster care who've been freed for adoption. And the important thing to remember about that is these are children who are in care through no fault of their own. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, February 9th. The PGA Tour announced that its tournaments have surpassed $3 billion in all-time charitable giving. Two universities received $100 million contributions, the University of Texas at Austin from Michael and Susan Dell and Northeastern University from David and Barbara Rao. Pittsburgh City Council voted to declare racism as a health crisis. In the adrenaline rush of a burning building, firefighters can lose track of the temperature and their own safety. But now, there is a suit where the gear will start beeping when the temperature hits 140 degrees. Plans to sell the .org domain to a private equity firm have international NGOs worried that civil society, which is already faced with a closing civic space, will lose its digital commons. And finally... Microsoft committed $10 million over five years for a new initiative called AI for Cultural Heritage in an effort to help preserve important cultural touchstones. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Anne-Marie Burgoyne right after this. Do you remember your first job? We all deserve opportunity, but the frustrating truth is that while talent is equally distributed in the U.S., opportunity is not. Six million talented young adults in the U.S. are out of work and out of school. Year Up empowers these young adults with valuable skills and connects them to leading U.S. companies. The results are real. 85% of Year Up alums are employed or in school within four months of graduating. Support opportunity for all young adults. Visit yearup.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. If you are looking for an organization that is approaching the most intractable social problems in a novel and innovative way, it would serve you well to check out the work of the Emerson Collective, an organization that was started by Lorene Powell Jobs. And with us tonight to shed some light on that work is Anne-Marie Burgoyne, the Managing Director of Social Innovation and Impact at the Emerson Collective. Good evening, Anne-Marie, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. It's good to be here. Thank you for including me. You know, Lorene named the organization for Ralph Waldo Emerson. What was the significance of that? It's such an important question, and it's such a grounding piece of our culture. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson had a very deep belief in self-reliance the belief that if 
individuals had an understanding of what was possible for them, if they had knowledge of what their choices were, and then if they had the options to go toward the choices that were interesting and important to them, that they could lead lives of great purpose and great community and great kindness. And so those are the framing topics of the Emerson Collective. Uh, which is why over time, so much of the work we do is about helping individuals to find those paths to make choices for themselves. Yeah, that's great, because there's a real belief that that power resides inside that individual, and organizations maybe can help remove a few of the barriers, but you don't have to do it for them. They have, they're the experts on their own lives, and they'll be fine if they just get a few opportunities. Yes. Yeah. You know, I think it's fair to say that Emerson is a different kind of organization. It's really quite unlike anything that I've ever seen. And it's been created to do a certain kind of work in a different way. How would you, Anne-Marie, describe the mindset and the approach that Emerson Collective takes to this work? So I'll step back and I'll describe Emerson a little bit. We're structured as an LLC, Mm -hmm. which allows us then on our team to have a wide variety of individuals with very different skills, very different ways of coming at the world and different ways of thinking about problem solving. Our goal has been to ask not just how do we make a grant here. The cry we use is how do you go beyond the grant? Mm -hmm. But how do you use an array of different kinds of tools to create social change? So my team, our framing topic is philanthropy, but we go well beyond the grant. We tend to do a lot of capacity building work. We create a lot of introductions. We do a lot of convenings. We have a team that does investing, and that's a different kind of market change. That's allowing the market, the commercial market, to move uh, how things happen. That can happen in the education space and impact investing. That can happen in the green economy space environmentally. There's a lot of places where the market has a very different, larger kind of power to change people's experiences and their access to services. Uh, We have a team that focuses on communications and marketing and storytelling changing people's hearts and minds, allowing them to build empathy or simply to build greater understanding of how different people make choices and different people experience and live their lives. That's a very important opportunity to give others access into understanding and empathy. Uh, We have a team that focuses on advocacy and policy, Frame change around how decisions are made, how resources are allocated, is another important kind of social change. We also have a team that allows convenings to happen much more easily at Emerson, Mm -hmm. which is a frame which can be very powerful. And then we have a media team that sits between our investing team and our philanthropic team, which allows us to put investments into both for-profit and nonprofit media organizations, which then takes some of those ideas around storytelling and gives them away to have dissemination and the power to move to additional places. So the LLC framework allows many different tools, and then equally importantly, many different people who come from very different places in the world, or at least in the US world, who have different skills and different social networks to go at challenges together and be in conversation about how to create solutions together. Are you seeing this LLC framework becoming more and more prevalent? And we know about Chan Zuckerberg, And everything you just described, so much more latitude than you would ever have with a 501c3, particularly around issues like advocacy. Yes. Um, Is that going to be a growing trend, do you think, or or, or not? Uh, I agree with you. We see it at Chan Zuckerberg. I think our friends at the Omidyar Network have always been good thinkers in this way. And the Skoll Foundation, the way it has the Jeff Skoll set of organizations, has also, I think, done some thoughtful work using different tools and different skills. My instinct is that this is the kind of 
and I'll even broadly say social change as opposed to just narrowly philanthropy, kind of work that could grow. Mm -hmm. I think you do have to make a commitment to being in a place that has some ambiguity. Um, I think you have to learn the importance of multidisciplinary communication. So people on grant-making teams think about the world a certain way, where it starts, where it ends, how decisions are made. Our investment team colleagues, they think similarly to us, but differently. Their timelines are different. Yes. The way they think about impact is different. Uh, our colleagues that sit on our communications, brand, and storytelling teams, they have a much less linear way of going at the world, but actually a much more lyrical way of coming at the <laughs> world. And so it's really helpful for them to hear the stories we hear and then bring that kind of animation to them. And then our advocacy colleagues are all about what's happening now, what's happening next, which is a very different frame as well. It's powerful because it brings many perspectives to the conversation, but it also means you need to listen well, you need to be patient, and you need to see how your work fits into something bigger and different than simply what you do. So I mention this because I feel like if folks have the appetite and the patience, then I think this is a really, really wonderful way of problem solving. But I think you do need to go at it knowing that it requires a level of thoughtfulness and effort mm -hmm. that you need to embrace. Embrace ambiguity. One of my favorite values of an organization that was Indeed. on the show, Simprints. Um, and the other thing also, in just listening to you, it really is talking about diversity. And so many people, when they talk about diversity, they do it within their existing frame. Here, the diversity is a cognitive diversity in so many different ways, and getting all those uh, strands coming together in a blend really uh, produces a completely different product at the end. It does. And then when I think about and the, whether you use the word diversity or equity and inc or inclusion, mm -hmm. there's this there's an array of, of labels you can place there. But one set of voices I haven't explicitly mentioned, which I think is so important to mention, are the people we serve and the people who the people we serve serve and assuring that the experiences of those people and communities are very much in the center of our work and I, I haven't been as explicit about that as I should be because so much of how we think about solutions is very deeply impressed upon by those people who are in places where they simply need more options and more choice and more access yeah constituent voice yeah 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 and as far as your grants are concerned, you make general operating grants and often do it for multi-year periods. Why is that the case? So it's interesting. I would say the vast majority of our grants are multi-year general operating grants. Um, and I think that that comes from a couple different frames. I'd have to argue, my gut instinct is to say, that seems to be the most obvious best way to do grant making. <laughs> and. And that, I think, comes from my really strong belief that if you get to know a leader, you get to know a leadership team, you understand a mission and you believe an organization is working toward that mission, that that would be the best place to invest. That allows the leader and their team to make highest best use choices, and it allows the mission to flourish in, in the way that it is best able to in real time. I recognize that there are times when organizations want to focus on a certain geography or a certain mm -hmm. project. That may be just a different way. But for us, what's pretty great about doing general operating work is when we come to organizations to spend time with them, and we have an annual call every year with every grantee, and a variety of people from Emerson join that call to learn to be proximate to the work, 
we asked them to give us a, a report based on what they said they were going to accomplish that year. So it's driven by them. Mm -hmm. And then we asked them to give us an annual report that they sent to another donor. Our goal is to meet you where you are, but yep. to learn. But then we really can ask about their board, about the staff, about programs that are hard, about things that are going well. But it allows you to have a palette of things to talk about. You don't get just narrowly born into that place where you chose to invest. You have a lot of freedom and flexibility. I'd also say I was an executive director many years mm -hmm. ago. I worked in the disabilities community. Nearly all of my grants were restricted grants. Yeah. And it made it extremely difficult. To, and I, you know, I could say to be creative. I'd even say sometimes to be pragmatic. Mm -hmm. I made a lot of suboptimal choices because that was the set of choices I had available to me. And then I was also blessed for years to work at the Drape Richards Kaplan Foundation, which is also a giver of general operating grants. And it became so apparent why those grants are like the stalwart. They're like the yeoman grants. <laughs> yes, they are. Because they do the work of whatever work needs to be done. Um, so I've always been really proud that we're able to do grant making that way. And I think we've become more and more committed to that kind of grant making over time. Well, I hope more people are. And there is discussion about that. I've seen so many organizations that sign these contracts and then get started and realize that it's not working. But they're committed because of a contract to continue on for another year and a half or two. And everything you said about general operating grants, I was just listening to that. It's very consistent with Ralph Waldo Emerson's belief in an individual. And this is sort of that extended belief to the organization. We've checked you out. We believe in you. And we believe you're going to make the right choices along the way and then report to us, as opposed to prescribing them almost with a crystal ball yes. over the next two years that this is what's, what's going to happen. The um, Emerson Collective identifies catalytic organizations that can create systems change. Now, that is a lot of buzzwords in that. So why don't you break it down for us a little bit and maybe give us an example of one or two of those organizations. And I agree with you. There are definitely some buzzwords in there. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I will break it down and I'll use the language we use internally. When we're looking at organizations to support and be in collaboration with, we look for strong leaders, mm -hmm. individuals who are deeply committed not just to their organizations, but to the fields in which they work. You could call them thought leaders, but I'd say more they're people that are rowing their boat in a way that other people can say, maybe I could try to row that way and see how that goes for me. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking for strong models. And if I were to pull that apart more, I'd say work that over time is structured in a way that you can learn why it is or isn't working work that over time you can pick the pieces that have been successful and you can do them deeper or bigger or mm -hmm. share them with others. We look for organizations that have chosen over time to gather data. And I don't just mean outcome data to fundraise better, although that's important, but data that allows the organization to equally importantly change and pivot their program Get better. to serve differently and to serve better. Um, and so those are the kinds of things we look for. So yes, they end up being organizations that are catalytic. They end up being organizations that fundamentally change their system, but we come at it more from the fundamentals of how has this leader and this organization found its path? What are they doing? How is that affecting others in the field? And how are they deeply serving the people they've chosen to serve? Mm -hmm. Give us an example of one or two. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I mean, one, and this is one that, that we've story told around for a long time, um, is the work of Education Superhighway, yeah. Evan Marwell's work. E Evan had a realization, and this was as a dad, um, that 
his kids' school, which was a school that was actually in a position to not have this problem, couldn't enable all of the students in the school to do blended learning concurrently. In fact, mm -hmm. not even maybe a handful of classrooms could. Um, and that put him on a hunt to figure out how many public schools in America could use blended learning under the belief that not every class and every kid every day should be using a blended learning curriculum, but there are ways when the computers can really enable meeting kids where they are and helping them to grow in their skill sets. And his realization was it was a very, very modest number of public schools. And so Evan used what I'd call sort of an air and ground game model. From a ground game perspective, he began to understand over time which public schools weren't in a position to provide access. And he did that through a very clever, simple way uh, where different schools, by simply pressing a button, could show the level of signal and connectivity that they had. Um, and then over time, that evolved into allowing schools to be able to have transparent ways to understand from a purchasing price perspective how what they were purchasing compared to what others nearby and far away were paying. Mm -hmm. It greatly decreased the pricing in the sector. But there was also an air game piece, which is he worked with the FCC. And I use he making it seem like it was just Evan. Evan would be very quick to point out that many, many people were involved in this conversation and this advocacy. But uh, the FCC changed the way it structured E-rate to allow a lot more money to come to schools to purchase um, equipment, hardware and software that could be used for internet connectivity. Um, and so in the end, of course, how the economics works is if you have more money and the price decreases, you suddenly have an enormous amount of buying power to right. fundamentally change access to public schools in America. And Evan, when I met him, and I met him when I was still at the Dre Pritchard's Kaplan Foundation, I was actually his first funder there and then referred mm -hmm. him to Emerson. And so I've been lucky enough to work with him for the entire time he's done his work. He said to me when he started, and at the time he would have said it was a crystal ball thing, in 2020 in seven years, this is going to end. We're going to have you know, ideally about 99% connectivity in public schools, and we're going to go away. And um, and here we are coming up to 2020, and by next August, that entire team will have been dismantled, and 99% of the schools in America will be at that target internet access number, which, you know, I say is a crazy thing only because I find it so delightful, not because <laughs> I don't know it to be true. But it is, it is really an amazing, humbling thing. It really is. You know, and I, so much of this sector, we try to mitigate problems. And he approached us right from the very outset, we're going to solve this problem. You know, uh, hook, line, and sinker, we're going to get it done by 2020. And that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I'll give you a different example of systems change. Uh, and I'm excited to share I'm joining the board of this organization mm -hmm. in January, um, which is honestly um, such an honor. Uh, but Bill Bynum and his team at Hope Credit Union, which is down in the South, and they have about 30 credit unions spread across um, four states in the South. Their work is very bottoms-up systems change, which I deeply admire. And, and for that team, asking the question, how can people who've historically unbanked, and I will stop and say, the number of people who are unbanked in our country or underbanked in our country is quite large. And it's disproportionately people who've historically not had very many assets, which doesn't mean they don't deserve to have them banked, and, um, and individuals of color and people who've been in much more manual labor sorts of roles. And so that team is on a mission to first ask, how do we get people banked? Mm -hmm. How do we help people to think about the stewardship of their hard-earned dollars? And then whether it's a car or a house or a small business, how do we help people to see that that's in their grasp? 
And then there's also other pieces of that program because Hope is a CDFI, which allows them to, to build community infrastructure. Right. But that to me is a whole different kind of systems change. When you give individuals and communities access to infrastructure that fundamentally changes the way they see themselves and they see what's possible, whole different but very game-changing kinds of work. That's for sure. Getting back to education, um, Emerson does a lot of work in education reform under the aegis of the XQ Institute. Fashion entrepreneur Mark Echo is your chief creative and strategy officer, which tells you a little bit about the different approach you're taking. Share with us uh, what's going on there. So XQ is really exciting. Yeah, it is. Um, XQ is focused on the observation that for more than 100 years, our high schools haven't really changed. Um, so much of the education that our young people are exposed to is about memorization. It's, it's very much about sitting in a classroom and listening and taking in content. But that isn't really how our world is. It's like going into a Wayback Machine. It's going into a Wayback Machine. And it's preparing people to work on factory lines that no longer exist. Mm -hmm. or, or whatever the analogy is, we don't have that anymore. And so what I admire about XQ is on one level, it's very much about fundamentally changing the curricular experience of high school kids in America. Um, XQ ran a competition to select the now 18 schools that are in the XQ cohort. And I'll go back to that in a moment. But it had at least a dozen content units that teams that applied had to review and understand to allow them to compete and bring an XQ school into the competition. Over 10,000 people were on those teams. There were over 700 teams that applied. And at least half of those schools, we had a fairly impressive team that addressed and assessed those applications, said that those were schools that were the raw materials of really compelling schools. Mm -hmm. And so whether it was asking, what do 21st century jobs look like? What does it look like to imbue technology into every aspect of learning? If we're in the middle of a climate crisis, what does it look like if you have schools that simply focus on questions of water or climate? Mm -hmm. One of the schools is in the museum of a community because it allows students to reflect on place in a very fundamentally different way. I think that's really in itself quite powerful. Yeah. And, and so there was an aspect that was very much about asking, what does 21st century learning look like? What are those skills? And how do we reframe the conversation about what seat time, learning opportunities and skill acquisition are. There was another piece of the work that was very much about, and this is where Mark comes into the conversation, how do we change the conversation about high school in America? I, I think high school kids are often seen as a threat or at least kind of a group to be handled carefully until they move on to some other phase of their lives. I have a high school daughter. High school kids are astonishing people. <laughs> they still have a level of idealism that allows them to believe many things are possible and a level of pragmatism that allows them to sort of anchor in where they are. And so that storytelling around what is possible for high schools and high school students, XQ also plays a really important cultural role. It goes back to the sort of fundamental tools of Emerson. We're in a place to be able to retell the story of high school and high school students. And what's been interesting to fast forward now, we have 18 schools in the original XQ cohort model. New York City, your city here, uh, is now entering into a partnership with XQ. And by the end of next year, there'll probably be 10 XQ schools, high schools. And we have a partnership in Rhode Island as well. And there'll probably be five schools there. And what's interesting is I feel like XQ has learned enough that they are bringing a toolkit to yeah. those conversations. At the same time, part of the plan is to bring 
educators, so parents and principals, families, members of the community together to be in conversation around that toolkit, not just to say, how do we execute on this toolkit, but what do we know about our communities, our students, our needs, to then assure that that execute model is taken and actually brought into the canon of that place. I, I think it's going to be incredibly exciting. And I think it really shows that this question of what can high school be is not only intellectually and curricularly capturing people's understanding and interest, but also culturally, which which I think you kind of need both to yeah, allow change like that to happen. at that age, too, you know? And, so uh, much so. But there's a complete reimagination here where so much of the school reform has just been nibbling around the edges. And if you don't change the, the this central This is digging into the middle. Yeah, this is... The, the messy middle, really. The messy middle is right. You know, I had the pleasure of having uh, Arnie Duncan, uh, the former Secretary of Education, uh, during the Obama administration on the show a number of months back. But he was so interesting, and for those who missed him, I want you to talk a little bit about Chicago Cred, what its mission is, and how it is emblematic of the way Emerson tackles tough, tough issues. So I'll start by saying, I'll, I'll remind you what I said a few minutes ago, that Emerson looks for great leaders working in great models. Yep. Arnie Duncan is a great leader. Mm -hmm. um, he was a great Department of Education secretary, and he is a man of Chicago. He is a person that deeply loves his city. And I think one of the challenges in Chicago that he was most taken by was the number of young men who were shooting at one another, particularly in like 15 to 17 neighborhoods in the sort of south and west sides of Chicago. Yeah. So it's an issue that some people in Chicago probably didn't have to entirely see day to day, but it was really an epidemic. And that's what Arnie wanted to go toward. I think his realization, though, was though many young men are in gangs, many young men probably have made choices that are not the best choices for them, a fairly definable handful of them are the ones that were most driving the violence in that city. And so the work has been as much about reaching out to those young men, highlighting that there are better options for them, more safer options, more lucrative options, and options that will allow them to see themselves in a future. And then a very intensive program that didn't just say, we'll get you a GED or we'll get you a job, but we're actually going to help you to get some cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. to help you to re-see how you see the world and, and how you go at certain things you know, in the world. All those wraparound services. All those wraparound services. And what I've admired about Arnie is instead of saying, we'll put the things in one at a time and see what we need, he really went at it and said, we need to do this in the right way. Mm -hmm. And I'll also say... There are pieces of the model, and this is very Emersonian too. When they started out, they did everything in a cohort model. Young men would start in a cohort, they'd go through in a cohort. And there was something really powerful in that. They had a lot of connectivity to one another. They saw themselves as a unit, and they wanted each of them to succeed together. But they realized that it was too long to build a cohort. Young men needed to move through the program at different speeds. And so the cohort in the end, even though it seemed like a really good idea and had benefit, wasn't the right model. And now they have a street outreach model. They reach out to young men, they pull them into the program, and they start right away. So it's different. The service provision has to be different. The young men experience one another in the program differently, but it allows the model to meet each of them where they are at any given moment. And The organizational learning piece that you were talking about a few minutes ago. Is so strong yeah. there. Mm -hmm. So they've served, my gosh, I think they've probably served over 500 men. There are thousands of other men that have been touched by portions of the service. CRED also provides a lot of summer programming for young people. Thousands of young people go through that program. And what I've also appreciated about the Arnie, the other thing I will say is he has surrounded himself with an excellent management team. Mm -hmm. um, 
top-notch individuals that have come from the best and strongest nonprofits in Chicago. His COO is, um, used to run Crane's business. He's found people with the networks, and I mean networks across the city, uh, and the knowledge and the wisdom and the patience and the care to want to focus on that group of young men and, and, they're they're, and their headway. families. They're making good headway. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there's lots you can attribute it to, but murders in Chicago are down 15% last year, 15% the year before, 11% this year, year to date. That's progress. There's something happening, I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah. Boy, so many other programs, but let's move on <laughs> to some of, some of the other things you're doing. And um, Emerson Collective founder, Lorraine Powell Jobs, she has a majority stake in one of the most venerable magazines in all of America, The Atlantic. Um Tell me how that and some of the other media properties of the organization are being leveraged to promote positive social change. And I, I have found this to be such an exciting part of Emerson's work. The Atlantic, Macro, yeah. Anonymous Content, um, Pushkin. What's been interesting to me is I feel like we're finding that place of respecting editorial line and allowing storytelling and stories about hearts and minds and change to find a home. And so I recognize that the Atlantic and all those other organizations that we work with have very strong editorial control and a very good eye for what their readers or their viewers are interested in. It is a business. At the same time, um, individuals on our immigration team will often sit down um, with, with folks on those teams and simply share This is what's happening at the border. Mm -hmm. This is what happens when a mom is separated from her kids. This is what it means if you are um, wearing um, a tracking device on your ankle for months and months. This is what it means if your spouse is in detention in Atlanta and you live in San Francisco. And I think over time, those stories stick with people. And they come back and they say, can I talk to someone who's had that experience? Mm -hmm. Can you give me a sense of the numbers of people? Can I go to that place and be proximate and better understand? And so it's not one of those magic things where we like deliver envelopes and things happen. (laughs) But I think it's actually more powerful than that because it's about being in conversation with colleagues and building a sense of shared knowledge and deep empathy together. Yeah. Um, and that's where I see that change coming from. Yeah, you plant seeds. And these are good stories that are not being told, too. So if you're in the journalistic field, these are really rich. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, in this uh, 3D game of chess that Emerson seems to be playing, you also um, are involved in many of the sports teams, particularly in the Washington area. Uh, tell us who those teams are and, uh, and, and and how you're partnering with them. Yes. Um, so we work with the Monumental uh, and they have um, well, they have three big sports teams. Mm-hmm. They have the Mystics, which are a women's basketball team. Won the championship this yeah. past year. And I think it's really important to list them first because women's sports deserves to I be. I agree. I knew you would. <laughs> and then the Wizards, which is of course is a men's basketball team, and the Capitals, a hockey team, mm-hmm. um, which also won. Yes. Yeah. It, it, so it's been really exciting. I mean, there's nothing like coming to something and then it finding its footing. <laughs> yes. Um, to me, sports is one of those places where mass culture conversation can still happen. We don't all watch Seinfeld together. We don't have Sunday night television that we talk about Monday morning at work. For that matter of fact, you can't because somebody hasn't seen it yet, and they'll shoot you, kill you, you if you start to talk about it. Don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. Sports is the, really the only the thing. The spoiler alert is a problem. <laughs> yeah. But sports allows that, and yeah. it allows that outside the arena, and it allows it inside the arena, too. 
And so we're continuing to explore, but the work in Washington itself and allowing organizations, nonprofit organizations, to be able to benefit more from the sports teams, um, and also just finding other ways for message dissemination to happen within and outside the arena. Um, there's some interesting work we're doing um, because some of the sports teams have some interesting work they do in Africa. And mm-hmm. so some of the outreach we've been doing actually across borders has been really interesting. And I think that work will continue to find its footing over time. That's what makes me even more excited. We're starting to get calls from players who are thinking about their own philanthropy and how can we have conversations about that. Mm -hmm. I hadn't anticipated that, but I think that's an interesting conversation too. Um, So we're learning, but you're right. It's another part of the Emerson arena, um, which as it finds its footing with the other pieces, I think will add a lot of power. Yeah, yeah. It's just approaching these problems with so many uh, different ways, multiple channels in terms of trying to attack them and see what happens. And it's going to be that kind of blend that you just don't even know what's going to come as a result of it. Um, You were a bit of a board junkie, and particularly at your time at Graper Richards Kaplan, who when they finance or invest in a company insists that somebody serves on the board. You've been on like 30 of them or something. So um, you probably know a thing or two about what makes them successful and the common pitfalls that so many organizations, particularly in the philanthropic sector, succumb to. Give us a few of your insights about nonprofit boards. I am delighted to, and I still sit on boards today. I honestly feel like it's a different proximate exercise than volunteering Mm -hmm. or, um, or visiting sites, for example. But I do think board sitting allows you to understand the guts of what's happening in an organization. Yeah. Um, and so when I think about board sitting, I tend to be someone that is in some ways deep in the room, meaning at board meetings, and in some ways uses the time in board meetings to be more contemplative. And then outside the room, I'm pretty active. So in the board meeting itself, what I've learned is um, it's a good time to listen and it's a good time to ask questions. And the best way to do that, of course, is to become really prepared by reading all the materials that are given to you. And if you're on a board where there aren't adequate materials given to you in advance, being a good advocate to feel like you show up prepared every time. Financials, a good executive director update, updates from all the committees. So a real sense that you're coming, and whether that's every quarter or every half year, and you really have a sense of the status update of the organization, Mm -hmm. I think is very important. I also feel like Um, And that's where the question asking comes in. So there's oftentimes I have feedback to give. And I don't think board meetings are the right place for feedback. I think feedback is better served outside the room. But I do think questions are really good in the room. And then I think about the work often of Bill Ryan and Dick Chait, who I think have kind of written the seminal piece on leadership, on board board work as leadership and management. And... um, I think board meetings are a great place for generative conversation. Those questions about what would happen if, or how does it work when, not to leave with a big list of action items, Mm -hmm. but to explore the edges of the mission, to understand where in different circumstances different choices would be made, where different possibilities sit. Because I feel like one of the things boards risk doing is doing what the leadership team capably does every day. Yeah. And if you're going to just litigate other people's work when they show up 10 hours a day and do it 50 weeks a year, that doesn't seem very helpful no, it doesn't. on a couple different levels. Yeah, it's sure. not respectful and it's not very fundamentally mm-hmm. useful. And so for me, I've always tried to figure out for a board member, what are those places that I can push the envelope a little bit? I also feel like sometimes I'm the person who provides cover because I believe actually that some level of risk taking and thoughtfulness is important. And there's other folks who I think stewardship is about 
holding everything super close. I tend to be a person who tends to say, let's give this some time and some space. And I will say the two things I think board members really need to be active in are giving executive directors very, very good feedback and um, really assuring during the budgeting process that there's a lot of clarity around the choices that are made in budgeting. Because resource allocation is strategy. That's kind of where it happens right there. And the budgeting process is where you have the opportunity to understand that and to give feedback. So those are the places I feel like I, I do really put focus. Yeah, yeah. Everything else is talk. When you get to the budget, that's, Very much that's so. what really happens. You also talk, um, looking at the seminal work, the balance between steerers and rowers. Yes. And I get it's funny. Um, if, if you're at all familiar um, with Bill and Dick's work, there's a two-by-two two matrix that has steerers and rowers. Mm -hmm. I guess over the years I've realized you can get up in that upper right quadrant and be a bit of a steerer and a bit of a rower, <laughs> and I sort of think that's who I am. And it's in part because I do think the steering piece is important. That's where question asking comes from. That's where risk mitigation comes from. That's where generative conversation comes from. But I'm kind of a rower because I used to be an executive director. Yeah. I'm kind of a rower because I believe that board members should help to fundraise. I'm mm -hmm. kind of a rower because I used to be in finance. And so I actually can look at a balance sheet and look at an income statement and have some insight that's valuable. And I often end up mentoring members of senior teams. Mm -hmm. So I sit in both. Sounds but like I, a good board member. <laughs> I think it's important to know what you are doing, too. Yes. Meaning like you're conscious of the choices you are or aren't making, where you are and aren't opting into. And I think it's also important this is my opinion, is that the board is a team. And people don't look at boards as being teams. They look at them showing up as an individual, uh, throwing in their two cents, writing a check, doing this. But for a board to really be great, it has to be a team. It's very true. And that's one of the reasons why um, I feel like Board, you can't phone it in as a board member, mm -hmm. which, which is a great temptation. And often the structure enables you to phone it in. But I'll often say to EDs, if you don't have at least a couple live meetings a year, and a live meeting where you have an expectation people come, yeah. an expectation they eat a meal together, an expectation they have approximate experience with the program, you don't get to check the box of it being a live meeting, and you need a few of those. And then I think committees can be useful or not useful, but one of the more useful pieces of committee work is that it creates opportunities for board members to interact with each other, not necessarily with staff. Mm -hmm. So you build rapport one-on-one, -on -one, you appreciate one another's skills, you understand the kinds of wisdom that different people have to bring, and then you can bring that into the room with you. Yeah. David, it was so interesting when in a committee meeting you shared this. Mm -hmm. Phil, we were on a plane one day yeah. and you said this, and it just makes it feel safer, and I think people bring their best when they feel like they are being asked to step up and do the hard They'll parts. They'll ask a lot more questions that way, and you can tell so much at these live meetings from body language. Yes. You just can't get on the That's phone. So true. You don't even know what the guy's doing on the phone sometimes. Because they're doing emails. Doing emails or, you know, watching Sports Center. I don't know what it is, you know? Um, getting back to Emerson, how would you describe the workplace culture at the Emerson Collective, and what makes it distinctive, different from all the other places you've ever worked? It is a very distinctive culture, and um, it's a place where um, multidisciplinary thinking is really valued and multidisciplinary communication, being able to sit down with peers who have maybe different perspectives and both listen and hold your own. Um, creativity, problem solving, um, really looking at ways to get at change that are different and that can be combined is valuable. It's a pretty optimistic culture. Oh, that's good. Um, I'm a big fan of optimism. I think if you don't believe something can change, it really cannot change. Oh, I would agree. It's a culture of joy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also a culture where people work pretty hard. 
Um, and so it's interesting because sometimes um, when we have folks who've come over from other organizations, they'll say about three months in, this is harder than I thought it would be. And my response is always, then I must not have set your expectations very well because that hasn't changed a bit. Just because yes. you showed up didn't mean it got harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think we're really, we believe that so many of the people we serve are working awfully hard. Mm-hmm. And we need to at least be keeping pace to be able to provide the kinds of supports that we want to. And add a word about the founder, Lorene Powell Jobs, and how she has helped shape and influence that culture. Lorene, all the things I just described are things Lorene holds very dear. Yeah. Lorene is very, very smart. She thinks deeply about issues. Uh, she's a very good problem solver. Mm-hmm. She asks a lot of questions and a lot of hard questions. Um, she laughs a lot. She finds joy in the work. Um, but I'll also say, and I share this with her, we have days of sadness and frustration too. Um, and I think it comes just from having a lot of care. Mm-hmm. Over time, if you know a lot of the people, you know the leaders of the organizations, you know their work, you know the people they serve, you kind of roll up and down with them. But the culture very much is an embodiment of how she does the work. Let me close with this, Anne-Marie. As you study this eclectic approach of the Emerson Collective, what do you believe its influence will be on the entire social sector and how others will begin to look at and think about their own work? I appreciate that question. And I feel like on one level, what the Emerson Collective I'm hoping is doing is shining a light on one way change can happen. And and it's it's born of the founder, Lorene. It's born of the people that she's gathered around her and the skills and the inclinations that they have. But a different philanthropist, I'll use that word sort of narrowly or broadly, would probably surround themselves with different people with different skills and opportunities, but could create a social change mechanism that could be very, very interesting and Mm -hmm. very, very powerful. And I hope others look and think not how can we be the Emerson Collective, but how can we be what we are distinctly in a position to be and to do. I'd say more narrowly, philanthropically, um, the path that we're on is really asking the question, how can we encourage folks to make more general operating grants, more multi-year grants? We have a fairly large capacity building program. We offer a lot of training opportunities, a lot of convening opportunities, and we offer the ones we've chosen to offer because of what we believe is helpful or relationships we have or our understanding of where needs are. But I think lots of other organizations could do the same. They'd probably come to a different set of opportunities. But I think it also would show a building of trust. The reason that we provide, and we call it frictionless philanthropy beyond the grant, the reason we provide those supports is going back to why we do general operating grants. We meet a leader. We meet their team. We have deep faith in them and the possibility of the work they could do. And we want to support them. So we don't sit around and ask, should we do more? We ask, how could we do more? Mm -hmm. And I hope others have that same sense of, I'm going to use the word generosity, not saying people aren't generous, but it is a different spirit of generosity when you just keep asking, if we make one more introduction, if that team goes to management training, if that leader had a coach, if someone came in and looked at that organization's balance sheet and straightened it out a bit, would that help them to understand their work better and to pitch their work differently? Those are the kind of questions we would love it if others asked. Yeah. Well, we certainly have underinvested in this sector across the board. Well, Anne-Marie Burgoyne, the Managing Director of Innovation and Impact at the Emerson Collective, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For listeners who want to learn more, tell us about the website and some of the information you have up there. 
Gosh, our website at any given time is a curation of a lot of different interesting stories. Right now, I think we have a piece on Amanda Ripley, who's one of our fellows, um, talking about how people in different situations can be in conversation. Um, Jason DeParle, who's one of our fellows who just wrote a book. Um, a good provider is the one who leaves. There's a piece on that there. Um, our Dial Fellows, which is a new program we have to help a number of our leaders of for-profits and nonprofits to be better communicators. There's a really nice piece there. Um, we have a partnership with Now This. There's mm -hmm. some interesting immigration explainers um, and some other really great stories about some of our justice and unity grantees, uh, Stand for Children, Impact Justice. I think Hope Credit Union is there. Uh, there's a lot of really it's terrific rich. content there. <laughs> well, thanks, Anne-Marie. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Their work has transformed how half a million people with disabilities access information, made it easier and safer for human rights defenders to document violations, and equipped environmental conservationists to protect ecosystems. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizOfGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. The Dave Thomas Adoption Foundation has been known as the voice of foster care adoption for years. And with us now to tell us about their work is Rita Sorenen, their president and CEO. Good evening, Rita, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you so much. Good evening to you. You know, the foundation was, of course, founded by Dave Thomas. Tell our listeners who he was. Yeah, Dave Thomas not only is our personal hero, but he was founder of the, the Wendy's uh, restaurants across the United States. So people may know him best um, if they've been around for a little while as that face of Wendy's in adoption or in commercials. But what people may not know is that he was also adopted. And so as he was moving um, into the latter part of his career and really looking at how to make sure that the company gave back in a way that was significant. And what felt natural to him was to pursue this topic of adoption, but not just every kind of adoption, foster care adoption. And so he created the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption in 1992 as an independent nonprofit public charity that would have one singular focus, and that was to elevate the conversation about foster care adoption, about the children in the system, about the process, and why we need to focus on children in foster care and those who have been freed for adoption, why it's an important conversation. So um, Dave Thomas really was remarkable in two ways, as, a, as an astute businessman who really created um, uh, an incredible brand, but had the foresight to think about the community as well. Yeah, what a wonderful legacy. Uh, how many children, Rita, are there in foster care in America who are waiting to be adopted? 
Yeah, today, the most recent numbers are there are 125,000, more than 125,000 mm-hmm. children in foster care who've been freed for adoption. And the important thing to remember about that is these are children who are in care through no fault of their own. They've been abused or neglected or abandoned. And the abuse has risen to such a level and has woven through the courts and this child welfare system um, to the point that parental rights, the ability of those parents to have access and rights to their children has been legally terminated by the court. And so these are essentially legal orphans in the United States just waiting for people to step forward and take them on as their own. You know, in addition to that um, stress that you talked about with their families and having to be separated for the reasons you cited, what are some of the more consequential impacts you've seen of children who've um, been in the foster care system? Well, we have, you know, in addition to those children who've been freed for adoption, we have in excess of 400,000 children who are in foster care. So mm-hmm. those children who we hope couldn't go home, right? They, they, they've been experiencing perhaps and across the nation, there's elevated numbers of parents who are involved in substance abuse, the opioid epidemic, yeah. which renders them almost impossible for them to parent appropriately. So children are removed and placed in foster care. But what we need to do is make sure that services are in place so that those parents can parent again. That's the best place for children, right? Is their original home, if, if they're safe and they can be cared for. Because what happens in foster care too often is these children move from home to home. They linger in care while services are being applied to families. And every one of those moves, every one of those separations from something known and comfortable creates trauma for a child. And that's mm-hmm. the last thing we want to do in a, in a system that's designed to serve them is create further harm or trauma. Those are the kinds of things our children children experience in foster care. And so we want to minimize the time they're in care. We want to maximize the supports that their families have. And first and foremost, we want to get them home. But if we can't, then we want to get them adopted as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I know all those children who are eligible, you do want to see adopted and find a permanent home and loving family. But with that said, do you have a particular uh, focus on any group of children? We do. We, um, a number of years ago, began to look at where is the most specific need that the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption can address. And it's this number that year over year in this country um, really keeps us up at night. Um, Every year, around 20,000 older youth, children turn 18 and leave foster care without the adoptive family we promised them. Mm -hmm. Now, we know their long-term outcomes are not really good, and not because they're not good kids. Right. But because they don't have the safety net of every other 18 year old who who has a supportive family around them. And so they're at a much more elevated risk of of not being well educated, of being unemployed, of being homeless, of becoming early parents. And so we really wanted to focus on that target population of children and youth, children age nine and older, children in sibling groups, children who have special needs, Mm -hmm. children who are most at risk of leaving foster care without a family. And we we began doing that uh, over a decade ago to really focus evidence-based programs, awareness and activities around these children. Uh, Rita, give us a little idea of how you work. What exactly do you try to do from from the beginning of this process to the end in in getting these kids uh, homes? 
That's a great question. First and foremost, we want to make sure that the public is informed about these children, mm-hmm. that the myths and misperceptions that surround them are are addressed. For example, we know, uh, based on a survey that we did a couple of years ago on Americans' attitudes toward children in foster care and waiting to be adopted, 46% of Americans believe children and youth are in care because they've done something wrong, because they're juvenile delinquents. Ah. If they believe that, then they're not going to step forward to perhaps help with the system. Mm-hmm. So we've got to, we've got to remove those Stigmas first, stigmas first and foremost, and we do that through education and conversation and social media, all of those those kinds of activities. But then we created a, a program a number of years ago in order to use our funding much more appropriately in a streamlined way to provide resources to organizations to hire full-time adoption professionals who utilize a model we've created, particularly for this target population of children and youth, that has shown at an evidence-based level to be much more effective at getting the these children adopted, children in sibling groups, children with special needs, older youth. And so that's where we put the majority of our donated funding is in this program. And we called it Wendy's Wonderful Kids because mm-hmm. our Wendy's partners stepped up and helped fundraise in their restaurants to help support this program. But today we're funding more than 450 of these adoption professionals in all 50 states and in Canada who work caseloads of the longest waiting children and get these children adopted. Fantastic. Are there any changes in public policy that you would like to see? You know, I, I would. Um, there is a, uh, an adoption tax credit that's available to everyone who adopts. One thing that we're working on now is making that fully refundable so that those folks who, who um, could qualify on an income level could get that full refund and not have to um, simply not have the resources that they might need to adopt children. But there are others, you know, more, more general in terms of how do we make sure that these children are not allowed to linger in care their entire lifetime? There are some children who go into care at a young age and stay there until they age out. And although there has been federal policy that has addressed that, we still have too many children who linger in care and then age out. And then making sure that parents who do step forward and adopt, perhaps a 16-year-old, they haven't necessarily saved for a college education. You know, They haven't necessarily had the kind of resources around them to provide perhaps post-adoption resources that the child may need, counseling or those kinds of things. So making sure there are a robust menu of contacts mm-hmm. and resources for parents who do step forward, because these are the children who've experienced the kinds of trauma that they may need some additional help once they've adopted. Well, speaking to those parents, um, who can be an adoptive parent of a waiting child, and what do people really need to think about and consider when looking to adopt through foster care? Yeah, that's a great question. So it used to be that um, adoptive parents were defined as a a married couple, a younger married couple Mm -hmm. who would step forward and adopt. And, you know, uh, that's not the case anymore. Single parents can adopt. um, Same-sex parents can adopt. Older folks can adopt. People who perhaps have already raised children and don't necessarily want to jump into diapers and midnight feedings again, but would absolutely consider a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. So the face of adoption has changed significantly. What we say is if you're qualified, if you're safe, if you can provide those kinds of resources, you don't have to be wealthy to adopt if you have 
uh, you know, a place for a child to live. They can get to school. They can they can come home and have be surrounded by love and support. That's the kind of qualified parent who can adopt. Now it takes a little bit more than that. So mm-hmm. if someone's interested in adopting, they need to contact their local um, child welfare agency, adoption agency, and we've got a list of those on our website of, of folks that we work with. Um, and then make that initial connection because there's required training, there's required home studies to make sure that the home and the and the family is safe, and there's a required period of what happens, how do I identify a child that, that is, is is you know, that I'm the perfect home for that child, how do I make sure that in this placement that we're going to be able to stay together for the long term. And yeah. I think those are the kinds of considerations an adult has to have. Remember that this is permanent. This isn't just a temporary placement. Mm-hmm. When you adopt a child, that child is yours as if they had been born to you. Um, and so keeping that long-term view, as well as understanding what will it take to have suddenly a 16-year-old in my house? Oh, yeah. Do I have the kind of family and friend and community supports around me that can help me through yeah. this uh, process. Yeah. What are some of the challenges that these young people face once they're adopted? I'm sure there's a myriad of them, but are there any that are a little bit more typical than others? Yeah, you know, particularly children who have been in care for quite some time, look, they have no reason to trust new adults in their lives. They've been abused. They've been abandoned. If they've moved from home to home or changed social workers constantly while they're in the system, adults to them are the cause of their problems, not the result of something that um, could be a long-term benefit to them. So it may take some time to really trust and and, and gel as a family. And I think we, we tell our parents that there's there's a need for patience in this process because the youth has every reason to be distrustful. And youth, well, look, we're all homing pigeons at heart, right? They, if they're older youth, they remember, they know their extended family. Mm-hmm. So if it's safe and if it's at all possible, the adoptive family can do whatever they think is right because they're the legal family. But keep in consideration the notion that extended family might be exactly what this child also needs in their life. So, and, and then remembering the kind of trauma that this child has experienced and making sure that they have access to the kinds of resources that the child may need, maybe not the first day, maybe Mm -hmm. not the first year, but a couple of years into the adoption. As the child continues to grow and their brain continues to develop, there may be triggers or issues that the child's just going to have to work out as they grow. So just keeping all of those things in mind while I remember that this is a joyous effort, that families are forever, and that these children are are so ready and willing to be a part of a permanent family. Good points. Finally, Rita, with so many children waiting to be adopted, what can we do as a society, um, really as a country, to see that more of these children actually are? Well, first of all, we need to know that the issue is there. We need to know that these aren't someone else's children over there in that city, that these children are in our own backyard and Mm. learn as much as we can about the process in our communities. And not everybody can step forward and adopt, but people may want to consider fostering the more temporary care of these children, or they may want to consider volunteering and becoming a mentor to to a youth, or they may just want to donate to an organization in their community that makes this work done. And then when there is a call 
to action. As you asked earlier, if there's policy change that needs to happen, be informed and be part of that call to action to assure, particularly now, quite honestly, as we move into a very political year, Mm -hmm. that candidates at whatever level, from, from council members to presidents, keep children at the top of the agenda and children's welfare. So they can be a voice, they can be an active participant in the child welfare system, they can step up and adopt. Well, Rita Sorenin, the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Adoption Foundation, I want to thank you for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and how people can help if they're inspired to do so. Absolutely. Um, our, our website at DaveThomasFoundation.org is robust with resources, with connections to the uh, in individuals that we work with across the nation, with videos of families that have been formed through foster care adoption. There's just a lot of information. And so it's a good place to start. There's uh, even a resource called A Beginner's Guide to Adoption that they can download or we can send copies to them, hard copies. So dig into the website and then if they need more information, please feel free to give us a call on our 800 line, 1-800-ASK-A-S-K-D-T-F-A for Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And we've got professionals here who can help walk them through a process, answer whatever challenges they may have, and get them connected to a local resource in their community. Uh, we welcome that kind of contact. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Reed. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.